The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now, let's get into the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking with one of the finest jazz musicians out there. He is a highly acclaimed guitarist. In fact, the legendary guitarist Les Paul named him on his list of his five most admired guitarists in the Wall Street Journal. He's prolific as a recording artist. And he is a touring guitarist as well, and a teacher. He's worked with everyone from Ringo Starr and Madonna. Frank Vignola, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Paul, it's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me to do this. I really do appreciate it. It's an honor. So, Frank, can you tell us, being a teacher yourself, who would you say has been your greatest teacher? Let's see. Wow. Well... I think as you grow, different people become uh, your teacher for the moment. Let's put it that way. I think, you know, my first real guitar teacher was a fellow by the name of Jimmy George, who was just a local player in Long Island. And he, um, you know, he taught me really how to play guitar. He would send me home with Joe Pass records and Django records and Charlie Christian records. and So it was pretty cool. And then I would say, you know, Gene Bertoncini became a dear friend and great teacher, although I've never taken a lesson with him. That was sort of the same with Les Paul, although I never studied with him. But wow, talk about a great mentor teacher. So I would say those three were... Uh, were my big uh, big influences as far as, you know, teachers. One being a teacher, the other two being just, you know, friends and, and colleagues. <laughs> as well as giants, you know, I mean, Les and Gene are giants, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned some, some music there that you'd listen to. Would you say that there were maybe a couple of recordings that rose to the top for you in your youth that, especially excited you? Well, the first record I kind of remember hearing, I was six years old, was Limehouse Blues' Django Reinhardt. The slower tempo version for those Django files out there. And I just remember falling in love with the sound. Uh, My father taught me the chords. He knew enough about the guitar to teach me the chords. And I was off and running, playing along with that record, you know, and again, my first guitar teacher, he taught me how to use my ear. He would send me home with a record and say, figure out the chords to, you know, seven come 11. That's the Charlie Christian tune. Or, you know, here's Joe Pass playing the watch. Try to pick out what you're hearing, you know, so it's a great way to learn looking back on it. 
You've worked with Bucky Picciarelli, who passed away not long ago, and I'm hoping you can tell us what was that experience like to to meet Bucky and to work with him. Well, you know, Bucky, I consider to be one of the innovators of jazz guitar. It's like Les Paul. It's like being such a big fan and, you know, having Bucky's records when I was eight years old. And and then you finally meet the man. And my first recollection of Bucky, meeting him in person, was actually, uh, it was a guitar event, a guitar show with five guitarists. Bucky, Tal Farlow, Howard Alden, Jimmy Bruno, and myself. And I'm walking up, and I see Bucky come up, and he sees the bassist, Jack Lesberg, pull up, who was probably 80 at the time. And, you know, he ran across the field and carried the guy's amp for him. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that that's pretty, like, just pretty cool, you know. And he was, you know, the sweetest guy. What a, what a great, and you talk about entertainers. You know, he could light the room up playing Stomping at the Savoy, you know. And uh, we did some great duet records. We played Carnegie Hall twice together, once with the New York Philharmonic and the other Jammin' Limehouse Blues. Ironic, uh, got schooled by Bucky Pizzarelli at Carnegie Hall. It was one of the highlights of my life. <laughs> So, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I have one of his guitars here with a hat that he gave me after I uh, brought him back a little gift from Switzerland. He gave me his hat. So I have it on uh, the Gibson L5 that I have of his and a couple of paintings, too. He would give me paintings throughout the throughout the years. So a uh, very special man, very dear to my heart. I miss him. Hmm. Frank, do you think instrumental music gets the respect it deserves? Um, that's a very good question. I mean, I'm not really... There's a huge market for instrumental acoustic music in kind of this bluegrass world. Americana, they call it. Like, there's a festival in North Carolina called Merle Fest. And I remember when I was with Mark O'Connor, we had an acoustic uh, trio with bass, violin, and guitar. Kind of, you know, a tribute to Stefan with, with Bucky, you know. So I remember going to these festivals, and there were like hundreds of thousands of people. And you'd walk out on stage, and be 5,000 like, people screaming after solos. I'm like, what's going on here, you know? So I think there is... Um, there is, yeah, a lot of respect given to uh, to instrumental music. Whether it's ever going to be, you know, like pop music, uh, it's just tough to say. I think the last one that really achieved that was Herb Albert, right? And Tijuana Brass, and, and they're the fourth best-selling <laughs> artist as far as record sales. So it's kind of tough to say, you know. Somebody, you know, someone squeezes in a hit here and there, but are you ever going to, well, and I say radio now, it's kind of funny. You don't even really get any radio stations anymore unless you have the, the satellite. So, which I miss radio, you know, I miss kind of driving around because a lot of the times with the satellite radio, it's the same playlist. So right. You kind of you get the same thing over and over again for months at a time. 
where like, you know, I remember driving through Philly and I'd get the jazz station at night and they'd be playing some new stuff and it'd be like, oh, I hope I can, you know, last the signal. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, I know, I know that emotion all too well when you're driving and it's like, oh no, I have to make this next stop, but <laughs> this well, station is know, cool. <laughs> I have a joke that we used to use on stage with, uh, with, with Vinny when we would travel. And, um, I would tell the story of hearing on NPR radio, cause I always used to like to plug NPR radio, you know, cause they're the lifeline of, of, of the music I love, you know. So, and I would say, tell the story of the, uh, Scheherazade, Rumsky Korsakov Scheherazade. So, and then right before the end, then he would say, well, what happened then? And I'd say, I don't know. I drove into the Lincoln Tunnel and lost the signal. <laughs> and people would laugh, you know. I would mention I was driving into New York City and heard the story of Scheherazade. So, so it seems so long ago now, too. Wow. Can you recall the first time you went into a recording studio yourself? Yes. Uh, well, let me think about this. I was always into recording machines so i remember a friend of my father's gave me a sound on sound machine which was interesting because that's what les paul used and that's the kind of multi-track recording where you get one shot you know if you make a mistake you got to go back and redo all the tracks not like today where you can pick and choose a note or redo a solo you know completely different mentality and level of musicianship as far as i'm concerned you know, the first time I do believe was, I mean, I know this sounds a little crazy, but my first remembrance is, is going into Les Paul's studio with with uh, Mike Peters, who had a Django-style band, and I was the rhythm guitarist. And we went to Les's studio, and that was the kind of the first remembrance of going into a, you know, real recording studio. And I just remember it was so cold, Paul. Because Les wouldn't put the heat on. He'd walk around with seven jackets before he spent the dime, you know, putting up the heat. So different era, you know. <laughs> so I just remember it being so cold. And then, you know, after that, you start getting called for more uh, recording dates. And, and then I started. To, but I think that was really my first time in a real studio was Les's house. What would you say is the most important thing that you learned from Les Paul? The most important, wow. I think the most important thing that I have learned from Les Paul, which is many things I might add, I've, I learned from him. Obviously, when you work with someone like that, if, if you don't learn something, then there's something wrong with you, is how important the people who are coming to hear you play are. Hmm. Meaning... That guy would, you know, at because we would play long sets. Once he got going, it was like, you know, a good two-hour set and then a break and then another two-hour set, you know, which was great. I loved it. But then afterwards, you know, people would be lined up, say, 80 people to get an autograph because they would announce after the second show, Les will be signing. And, you know, he wouldn't get out of there sometimes till 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning because everyone who was on that line got their questions answered, they got their picture, they got something signed, Les would look them in the eye and talk to them like they were, you know, 
So I was just like, wow, look at that. And no wonder why the guy's the biggest star in the music business, you know? So that's what I think the most important thing I learned was how important it is at concerts to be present to the public. I think that's very important. I mean, I got to travel, which was very rare. You know, only two or three times did we make trips outside of New York. And man, he would go 24 hours a day, interviews all day long, nighttime, all different countries. You know, it's like, wow, this guy really, you know. So that's what I learned was how important it is to be present to your public, no matter what level you're at. You know, if if you're out there after the show and you're talking to people, it's likely they're going to come back the next time because they feel like they they got to know you a little bit. And I think that's a very important thing that a lot of jazz artists, I think, miss. A lot of guys just stay back in the dressing room and hide, you know. People want to meet you, you know. So that's what I thought. And then, you know, the other thing, which I think was equally important, was he, he never you know, told me what to play or anything like that. He just said, how are you going to reach the people who aren't jazz guitar fans? He said, that's what you really have to think about. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so, so there you go, you know, from from then on, it was more of a, uh, I don't want to say an entertainment mentality, but, uh, you know, it, was, it really struck me of like, wow, you know, just to make people laugh a little bit, I think is really important instead of being so serious all the time. And, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's just what I got out of it because he would get out on stage and make people feel like they were in his living room, you know? And I was always just like, wow, it's amazing. You know, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. What you're saying there, Uh, a couple of things there, you know, I I spent like an entire day. I, I just got totally pulled in by some of these old radio shows that he did. Mm. And this connection you're talking about, even in the audio format of radio, I was like, I feel like I'm in Les Paul's room. And, you know, he, mm-hmm. he's talking to me right now. And I just thought, wow, what? this is a, this is a very different person. Amazing, right? Yeah, yeah. He was like that on the phone, too. It was like, I remember when I first met him, I was 19. I went in uh, and sat in with him at Fat Tuesdays. And it's funny, I remember too, they were all on stools. He put me on a chair in back of the trio so no one could see me until he heard me play. And then he would like put me on the stool. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> oh, what a character. So, yeah. Well, Les was saying, how do you connect with non-jazz fans? with what you're doing and i'm curious what what do you do how how do people do that how does jazz build that bridge over to people who think they're not jazz fans or don't know they are <laughs> through the repertoire that's the way i've i've tried to do it and i've had more guitar players wives come up to me and say oh or they come up to me oh my wife loves you guys it's the first time she's ever liked somebody that you know, I took her to see, and, you know, and then the next time they're back with a group of eight people. I'm like, wow, this is the way you build your audience. And I think it's the repertoire, speaking to the audience, and just, you know, having them sing along, like on Killing Me Softly. Everybody knows that song. So you know what? 
everybody sing along. And sure enough, all of a sudden, 200 people are singing, da 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 And now you got him. <laughs> Great Les Paul routine was when he would stop in the middle of a song when someone was taking a picture, and we'd all gather around him and smile. So I stole it. Someone would come up with a picture in the first tune, we would stop, then he and I would pose for them, and people laugh, and all of a sudden, boom, you got him. You know what I mean? Hmm. <laughs> Very interesting. So, and then, you know, do like an Ellington medley, you know, feature the music of Duke Ellington. Instead of playing A-Train, going back and forth playing solos. That's how you bore people. I hate to say it, but, <laughs> you know, we're not Lester Young and Charlie Christian, you know. <laughs> it's a different time. So that's the way. And then try to pick some tunes like we do a version of Sound of Silence, Paul Simon, you know. I mean, great song. You know, so we have a little version of it, and people love it. It's like, wow, you know. So just try to invent some classical themes, some, you know, Beethoven's Fifth. We take it, and we swing our guitars back and forth, and you know, <laughs> little silly stuff like that. You ever hear of the Shadows? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, they, uh, they're it's kind of a big influence with their little dance steps and the way they would, you know, have their arrangements. It was just so good, you know, and so entertaining like hey i could sit down and listen to lester young all night but wow look at those guys swinging their guitars back (laughs) that's just as as good you know so frank is there anything you're working on at the moment well i've been working on these learning clubs virtual learning clubs for my uh students obviously it's been a year of lockdown so when the Zoom technology took over the planet, I discovered something called the mute button. (laughs) (laughs) And you can mute everybody, and I could give a class. So I have these 10-week learning clubs based on, you know, different uh, uh, composers. We did an Ellington one, 10 Ellington tunes in 10 weeks. We're finishing up the Charlie Christian one tomorrow. We're in the middle of a Django one. Again, it's 10 tunes. They get a lesson on how to play it. They get the chord sheet, and then, boom, we play it together virtually. Everybody's muted but me, and people love it, you know? it's. It, and then I have a fretboard class, which has been kind of fun. So it's sort of an online university for, you know, retirees, basically, who want to play some jazz guitar, and there's a huge market out there. It's a great way for me to keep learning because wow to just you know play 10 charlie christian tunes on tuesday every week and then on sunday we play 10 ellington tunes and i got to kind of talk a little about it and do a little research and listen to what ellington did it's like wow keeping myself busy and keeping myself in business so so that's what i've been doing just learning and trying to you know, share some rhythm guitar playing with people. So on the other side of the screen, they could work out their stuff, you know. Interesting. Some people out there might be aware of this. It's a it's a kind of hard-to-find album. I think it's really underrated. It's very cool. But you played on it. You, you did this with Eddie Davis, who also has just passed away recently. Yeah, he was a good friend of mine. Can you tell us a little bit about this experience of working with Eddie Davis on the That's the Samba? Really? That's, wow. Yeah, that, that's amazing you're asking that. That's, uh, I've known Eddie for ever since I was a little, little child. My father and he are, were very good friends. 
And um, Eddie produced my first record album when I was 13 on the banjo, actually. And we would, um, you know, we would kind of meet up at these banjo conventions and we would sit up all night and just play songs and he would sing. And that guy knew more songs than anybody I think I have ever come across in my whole life. The words, the verse, just incredible. So along the way, he's like, hey, you know, I write these songs and would you consider you know, going in the studio and recording. I said, absolutely. And that was it. He sent me about 500 of his songs (laughs) and we just started going through them. The guy was uh, full of energy. I mean, that, that really hurt when he like, wow, all of a sudden he in the hospital and a few weeks later he's dead. It's like, damn, this is for real, isn't it? This virus. Yeah. So that's when it really hit home for me. It was like, damn, Eddie's gone because we were playing in a, a jazz banjo camp in March right now at the end of the month, March 29th, that weekend. Uh, obviously, it was canceled, but so uh, it's kind of interesting. Ask about. I think he was one of the greatest musicians that I've met, even though it was tenor banjo, but I'll never forget, too, we did a performance and the end of the show, we uh, pulled out Flight of the Bumblebee. He was playing the bass. <laughs> stand-up bass, and he has this guy's bass that he borrowed. So I put the guitar behind my head, and I start playing Flight of the Bumblebee, right? So he puts the bass on its side, and he stands on the bass over it and starts plucking the bass, smiling, you know? And it brought the house down, but the guy with the bass, he came running up after the song. He's like, how dare you stand on my... (laughs) Oh, it was so funny. He got so upset with Eddie, but, you know, hey, what are you going to do? He's like, in the moment, it's got to entertain the people. Uh, He was the best, no doubt. Well, I'm I'm very sorry for your loss and... and for it was a loss for for everybody you know mm. somebody said after he passed away that when eddie died it was like a library being burned down yeah exactly exactly i mean again that guy could sit there for 5 hours and go through songs just play 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 wonderful yeah great guy really really great I don't think I remember too much about the records, though, to be honest with you. I remember recording them. They were fun. Joe Ascioni was on a lot of it, and a bass player from Australia, and then Eddie and I, and I don't know. I don't remember much. I I bet it's really good. (laughs) Yes. Oh, it's great. It's great. I interviewed Eddie, and we never did this, but he wanted to do an interview just talking about Samba. And it never happened, but I love that record. Oh. That's the Samba, so people maybe can find it. Yeah, when well, maybe we can uh, listen to it together and 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 talk and do a little, uh, you know, segment on it. I'd love that. That would be cool. It's not Eddie doing it, but yeah, that'd be nice. I'd love to uh, to kind of listen through it, and you know. You know, he wrote a whole symphonic piece called Omega and and uh, Alpha and Omega. I have the he sent it to me. It's a whole whole symphony piece, like fifteen minutes long, three movements, and it's out there. I mean, it is like atonal, you know, twelve tone huh. row stuff. 
Oh, I'd like to hear that. So, I know. I'd love to hear it, too. But you have an orchestra? <laughs> <laughs> what is the best thing about being Frank Vignola? Oh, let's see. Well, you know, I feel very fortunate. I have a great family, four kids, my wife. I'm very lucky I can get up every day and, you know, survive. I mean, that is really the best thing about being Frank Vignola is the fact that I don't have to get up and, you know, a lot of musicians now are hurting. And I'm very, very fortunate that I have such a strong teaching base that I've worked very hard, you know, because I'm insane. I just can't stand still. <laughs> so... I think that's the best part is just, uh, you know, being secure with a good family, no, no problems there, no problem children or abusive relationships. Or I'm just, you know, very, very fortunate. I always like to end the show. I just give the guest the stage, so to speak. It's been mm-hmm. a great pleasure to have you here. Anybody out there, they can visit frankvignola.com. What would you say to anybody who's tuned in with us? Well, I would say thank you, Paul, for a great interview. Very thoughtful. And thanks for listening in. I mean, I think um, why, <laughs> when I first got your postcard, I was like, why does he want to interview me? But, <laughs> you know, thank you for the thoughtful questions and you know, uh, and bringing up Eddie Davis as well as Les Paul. I think that's that's really cool. So just just thank you. Well, thank you, Frank. I can tell you one of the, my favorite things to wake up to is your music. Your music has wow. this, I don't know, it's just, it's like coffee. <laughs> it, it, it's wonderful. I Well, you know, I probably have a lot of stuff, Paul, that you haven't heard. And if you don't mind, maybe I'll send you a couple MP3s or WAV files of some unreleased stuff for live shows. I have a lot of stuff with Bucky, with Vinny, a lot of stuff. So if you're interested, if you enjoy it, you know, I I like to share it. Why not? Absolutely. I appreciate that a lot. And Frank, I, I hope we can talk again someday. Thank you so much, and until next time. Okay. All, All right. right. Thank you. Thank Bye, you. Paul. Bye-bye. Goodbye.